KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Teachers in San Diego County's South Bay are demanding more safety measures for reopening schools. Union leaders from four South Bay districts gathered on Tuesday for a virtual press conference. They said their neighborhoods are still seeing high infection rates. Susan Scala is the president of the teachers union at the Chula Vista Elementary School. We want it to be safe for everyone. We have a moral duty. We have an ethical duty to protect our students, our families, all of our workers. And we can only open only when it's safe. Some zip codes in the Chula Vista and Sweetwater school districts have infection rates of more than double the county average. Teachers unions said they understand the need for students to get back on campuses, especially those with disabilities, but say some districts have yet to come up with solid plans. At San Diego State's main campus, there have been at least 41 cases of coronavirus among staff and students. Nearly half of those cases have been reported since school started last week. SDSU officials say over three days, they issued nearly four dozen notices of coronavirus violations to students and campus organizations. Sam Barnett is a junior at SDSU and says the cases aren't surprising. We all kind of saw it coming. Like. It's not, of a ma- it's not a matter of like if, it's more of a matter of when that it's going to happen. And we already see it starting to happen. It's only going to get worse. SDSU is hiring private security to help enforce the rules. Among newly reported cases, all but three are from students living off campus. None of the students attended any in-person classes, but one did briefly visit the bookstore. For now, university officials say they are not considering moving in-person classes to online. A last-minute deal by the state legislature will provide some relief to thousands of renters impacted by the coronavirus. Under the legislation, tenants that missed rent between March 1st and August 31st will have that amount turned into civil debt, meaning they can't be evicted because of it. But the law also requires tenants to pay at least a quarter of their rent between now and February, even if they still have no income and their unemployment insurance can't cover that amount. Grace Martinez is a tenant advocate with the group ACE. She says with California housing courts reopening tomorrow, many tenants won't be able to navigate the legal system and avoid evictions. Are there enough lawyers on the tenant side that will actually be able to go to bat for them? And the answer is no. Tuesday afternoon, the Center for Disease Control issued a nationwide eviction moratorium for those making under $99,000, citing the need to control the spread of the coronavirus. KPBS has reached out to the state's Judicial Council to see how California will enforce the CDC's moratorium and has yet to hear back. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, September 2nd. This is San Diego News Matters from KPBS News, a daily morning news podcast powered by all of the reporters, editors, and producers in the KPBS newsroom. Stay with me for more of the local news you need to start your day.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego water managers are working with local researchers to understand how atmospheric rivers bring water to the region. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has details. The moisture-laden storm systems bring rain to Southern California, but too much rain can be damaging. Scripps Institution of Oceanography researchers hope to better understand atmospheric rivers, ARs as they call them, so they can predict when and where they'll hit. We're in a climate where the annual precipitation can vary a lot from year to year. Marty Ralph is the director of the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes. He says ARs are key rainmakers. About 40 to 60 percent of California water supply comes from a few ARs each year. Knowing when and where a storm will hit is valuable information for the San Diego County Water Authority. The authority can use that to release reservoir water ahead of a storm if that storm will bring significant rainfall. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. It's a new take on an old idea, neighbor helping neighbor. KPBS reporter John Carroll says North Park now has a community fridge. They're popping up in cities across the country, community fridges, where people who need food and other essentials of life can come for help. The one in North Park is next to Hangers Cleaners at the intersection of 30th and Lincoln. After seeing community fridges in other American cities, Annie Lynn decided her own community needed that kind of help. She posted about it on Instagram, and the idea took off. I made an Instagram and an email account associated with the community fridge, and in just four days, um, we have over a thousand followers and supporters. A local business group, North Park Main Street, expressed concern about safeguards being in place to make sure the donated food is safe. But Lynn says, so far, so good. The fridge was just installed last Friday, and she says it's already been emptied and refilled several times. The electricity is being provided by the owner of Hangers Cleaners. John Carroll, KPBS News. More than a million acres in California have burned already this summer. The short-term cost of wildfires is in the millions of dollars. And as Cap Radio's Ezra David Romero reports, the price tag could continue to skyrocket. Adam Rose is an expert in the economics of disasters and climate change policy at USC. He says the probability of fires costing more than a pandemic is very likely unless something is done to curb climate change fast. Wildfires in one year, it's not as big as COVID, but what we should do is look at the probabilities of occurrence. 
I think it's fair to say the fires could be just as devastating as COVID-19. To prevent future fires and their negative economic impact, he says forests need to be cleaned quickly with things like prescribed burns. Luckily, the state and the federal government announced a plan last week to thin 1 million acres of forest by 2025 and is in the process of creating a 20-year plan. In Sacramento, I'm Ezra David Romero. California Health and Human Services Secretary Dr. Mark Gawley held a news conference Tuesday to discuss the state's new four-tiered COVID-19 plan for safely reopening the California economy. A key part of the plan is making counties spend three weeks in a tier before they can move to the next, less restrictive one. We believe that one of the lessons we learned in our earlier reopening experience was that two weeks wasn't enough that it took at least two weeks, one sort of complete incubation cycle, plus a little bit more time to see the impact of any change that you made. And so we really wanted to stick to three weeks, and and frankly, that's the minimum. As of today, 39 California counties, including Sacramento, Sutter, Yuba, and Amador, are in the most restrictive tier. This means few indoor businesses are allowed to operate. Only two counties, Alpine and Modoc, are in the least restrictive tier, which allows most indoor businesses to open with modifications. California's legislative session wrapped up after 1 o'clock Tuesday morning, and as CAP Radio's Scott Rod reports, it was truly one for the ages. The end of any legislative session in California is going to be hectic. But this year, the chaos was on steroids. Lawmakers had a mountain of bills to get through since the coronavirus pandemic sidelined the legislature several times during the year. Things were further complicated in the Senate by a Republican caucus that had to vote remotely through video conference after one of its members recently tested positive for COVID-19. That meant clunky, time-consuming glitches and the occasional hot mic, like this slip-up from Senator Melissa Melendez. This is bullshit. Um, I have to agree with my colleagues. As the midnight deadline neared in the assembly, the chamber gave way to speed reading. I request unanimous consent to suspend the rules to allow authors to take up the following bills today without reference to file with the purpose of concurrence and Senate amendments, AB 1685. There was even a photo finish. Senate Republican leader Shannon Grove contested the passage of a bill after the vote came down to the wire. After 11.59, it took one minute and 17 seconds to go through the roll call vote. This vote did not pass prior to midnight, according to the Constitution. Amid all the frenzy, lawmakers did pass some notable legislation. One bill, already signed by Governor Gavin Newsom, pauses evictions through January for tenants who missed rent payments due to coronavirus. Other legislation died without getting a vote, simply because time ran out. Most notably, a bill that would have stripped law enforcement officers of their badges for committing certain crimes or being fired for misconduct. It was a marquee proposal from police reform activists. Scott Rod, Cap Radio News. A new documentary wants audiences to consider the mental health of President Trump before they mark their ballots in the November election. Unfit, the psychology of Donald Trump became available on demand yesterday. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando has this preview. 
Duty to Warn is an association of mental health professionals and other concerned citizens who advocate for President Trump's removal from office under the 25th Amendment on the grounds that he's psychologically unfit. They present their case in Dan Partland's documentary, Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. The film diagnoses Trump as suffering from a condition known as malignant narcissism, which consists of narcissism, paranoia, antisocial personality disorder, and sadism. Justin Frank, a psychoanalyst and psychiatrist, states the film's case clearly. Is Donald Trump fit to serve as the president and commander-in-chief? I can answer that with one word, no. Psychologist John Gartner adds this. We could lose this grand experiment in democracy. I think we're more than halfway there. Partland interviews psychologists as well as historians, politicians, former Trump staffers, and others to build a compelling case. But the problem is, no matter how much information he presents, no matter how many examples he cites from Trump's own words and actions, he ultimately may only preach to the converted. So his film may not reach viewers whose minds he wants to change. Beth Accomando, KPBS News. The San Diego Police Department has for the most part, followed a new state law and publicly released videos soon after officers shoot people. But one video from May still hasn't been released, and it's not clear why. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser looks into that case. And a warning, the following story contains graphic descriptions. Just before 10 p.m. on Saturday, May 23rd, San Diego police officers went to the apartment of a woman who was throwing bottles into the street. Here's a media briefing from that night. Numerous phone calls from uh, different reporting parties stating that a female at the 1200 block of uh, Market Street was throwing uh, objects out of the window, striking some folks on the, on the street. As they uh, went into the, uh, the apartment complex where she was at, uh, gave her numerous commands to come out. She refused to come out. Officers used a police dog to force her out, according to the San Diego Police Department report on the incident. The woman attacked the dog with a knife, and so police officers shot her, the report said. The woman, who is not being named, survived the shooting. Under AB 748, a new state law that went into effect a year ago, the department had 45 days to release video of the shooting. The department has complied with that requirement in the seven other instances where officers shot someone since last July but not this one. If there's an investigative reason as to why you're not releasing the video, that exemption can be made. That's San Diego Police Spokesman Lieutenant Sean Takeuchi. So on the shooting, officer-involved shooting that occurred on May 23rd, there is an investigatory reason. I don't know what that reason is. I'm not, I'm not in the homicide unit, but there's a reason why that hasn't been released. By law, if the department doesn't release video, they're supposed to cite a specific reason why the video, quote, would substantially interfere with an active investigation. The San Diego Police Department hasn't done that in this case. It's a little hard for me to understand how the disclosure of a video of a body-worn camera video would disclose information in a way that would impair an investigation. James Chadwick is a First Amendment lawyer for Shepard Mullen, who has represented KPBS in public records cases. They should be providing an explanation of what it is that, that is, you know, what it is about this particular situation, this investigation, 
that is going to be compromised potentially by the disclosure of the video. There may be a temptation among police departments to quickly release the videos where they look good and the shooting appears justified, and then delay release of more problematic videos. But that strategy likely won't work. So says Rachel Lang, who helps local police departments with crisis communication. The problem is that some, you know, in a time when it's not cut and dry and the video doesn't exonerate anybody or, or really um, display what actually happened, um, there, there's going to be trouble then. And people will obviously think that they're, they're trying to hide something. So there's, there's a little bit of a uh, give and take there. But I mean, I would err toward releasing information more quickly. Lang added that the Memorial Day killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police has permanently raised the stakes for law enforcement agencies when it comes to transparency regarding use of force incidents. I don't think we're ever going back to a time when the public will forget, you know, uh, you know, it's not like you can just ride it out and hope that the news cycle moves on. I think they, if they do, it's wishful thinking. <laughs> I don't, I just don't think we, we're ever going back to that time. It's like it, suddenly we finally reached a point and I think a lot of people said, you know, we've been seeing this for years. People have been releasing these videos for years and years and years and something finally just you know, I think the George Floyd video finally just broke through and made people rethink how they've, you know, approached giving the benefit of the doubt to police officers. That's certainly true for Tasha Williamson, a San Diego activist. She says about the San Diego police. They're releasing things that uh, are in their favor. So they think, quote unquote, that anything that's not in their favor, they need more time. The lawyer, James Chadwick, says it's possible, but highly unlikely, that the San Diego Police Department is holding back the video because the officer is going to be charged. It's more likely that the woman who was shot or someone else involved will face prosecution. Most of the other subjects who are shot by police have died, so they wouldn't be prosecuted. Assemblyman Filting, who wrote the law requiring the videos to be released, says he included the investigation exemption as a compromise, but hopes to refine the law in the future. Whenever you start with, with no law, it's very difficult to build on, you know, build on something. You also don't know where the starting point is. So I think we want to see how it's working. Um, and obviously, as, as laws go into effect, you see whether there are loopholes or do you, you see definitely whether there are areas of which, um, you know, are, are areas of concern. And so based on that, we would obviously make changes. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. Coming up on San Diego News Matters, what role can a horror film festival play as we face a real-life pandemic and the impacts of systemic racism? And it's an opportunity to have conversations about things that are not comfortable. And, you know, it shouldn't be comfortable. This is not a comfortable genre. Horrible Imaginings Film Festival kicks off tonight, and KPBS film critic Beth Accomando has a preview. That's up next after this break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, 
healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Horrible Imaginings Film Festival is dedicated to showcasing horror, sci-fi, and fantasy. It began in San Diego, but the high cost of venues forced it to move to Orange County. Now the coronavirus pandemic has forced it to go online. KPBS's Beth Accomando previews the festival in which she served as a judge. Horror comes in many shapes and sizes. It can be subtle or over the top, funny or truly scary, based in the real world or complete fantasy. Miguel Rodriguez of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival likes to program his short film blocks by theme so people can experience a diversity of styles. Well, one of our themes is called Twisted Innocence, where you have these characters who are you know, either children or cute fuzzy animals or things like that, and they show a very dark side. Like Milk Teeth, which is set in an orphanage. Children, I can give you all riches beyond your wildest dreams. Just send one of your teeth down the drain. It's really interesting to see when different voices can share a same thread, even though their films might be radically different. It might be scary, it might be funny, it might be animated, but they are expressing the same kinds of things. Part of the festival's mission is to show the various ways you can use the art form to express fear and anxiety. At a time when we're dealing with a pandemic, social unrest, police brutality, and a general sense of unease, horror can sometimes offer ways to heal, inspire, and provoke necessary discussion. For me, it serves the purpose of exercising dark feelings and and it's an opportunity to have conversations about things that are not comfortable. And, you know, it shouldn't be comfortable. This is not a comfortable genre. Each year, themes tend to emerge from the way filmmakers respond to the world around them. The source of the horror this year is a lot less about immediate bodily harm. But if we're talking about like a trend line, it does seem to be more, you know, the questioning of reality definitely comes into play. There's a, a short film called Optic Nerve that is very much just like very ab abstract. It explores how reality can morph when we're locked in a room alone at night. It's set in 1973 with Nixon and the Vietnam War as backdrop, yet it speaks to our current anxieties as well, as does the Mexican film Mateo about a zombie remembering his former life. The uh, idea of are the things that used to make us feel safe, did they ever really exist? Or were we always just lying to ourselves all the time? Then there's the film Hammer, which unfolds in a single take in real time. Karen! Yet the ending forces us to rethink all that we witnessed, to see a different truth than we originally perceived. There are also films that open our eyes to the realities of others, like Affliction, in which two people have opposing perspectives on a sexual encounter, or Hammurabi, in which a mute woman needs a translator to help explain her revenge. It's Jacobina, Dad. <laughs> Surprise! Dad! I bet you didn't expect to hear from me. I thought you said you got it wrong. the only way that I could talk to you. It's a nuisance, but... Kind of cool, you think? There's also the Colombian animated film Lenses, in which placing a lens in front of your eyes reveals an unseen world. 
I love the style of lenses. It's it's unlike anything I think I'm I can really say I've seen in how meticulously what is shown and what is not shown, right? Like what is missing from the images in lenses is just as thought out and important as what is on display. Just like reality can be more than meets the eye. This year's Horrible Imaginings Film Festival has nearly 30 hours of shorts, features, and documentaries, plus online discussions with filmmakers. That was KPBS's Beth Accomando. Horrible Imaginings Film Festival kicked off last night and streams through Monday. For more information, go to Beth's Cinema Junkie blog at kpbs.org. That's it for the podcast today. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.